Stay tuned for a teaching you can trust, a message that will inspire, strengthen, and equip you with vital insights and understanding from the Word of God. Here is Rick. Welcome to the program. My name is Rick Renner, and I've been waiting for you. And I'm so excited that today we're going to be in a brand new series about John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. It's one of my favorite subjects. And for sure, you need to get something to write with and a piece of paper and get your Bible because today you're going to want to take notes. There's going to be a lot of information in today's program. We're going to walk through a little piece of church history, and I believe it will really illuminate the book of Revelation for you. But we're going to begin in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. You say, well, why would we begin in 1 John if you're going to do a teaching on Revelation chapter 1? Because John wrote 1 John after he was released from the Isle of Patmos. John was imprisoned on Patmos, as you'll see in just a few moments. And when he was released, he wrote these verses in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. It says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. This verse is so much more powerful when you understand John had suffered many things and yet had come out the master. He had come out the victor or he had come out the overcomer. And when John writes 1 John 5, 4, he's not just giving us a theological statement. He's talking about what faith has done in his own life. John is speaking from experience and he says, we have a faith that overcomes the world. That word world is the Greek word cosmos, which could describe the system. It really means we have a faith that overcomes the system. We have a faith that overrides the system. It doesn't matter what life tries to bring against us or what the devil sends our way. We have a faith that overcomes. And John says, who is he that overcomes? This is the victory. This is the one that overcomes, the one who's moving in faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now keep all of that in mind as we begin to study Revelation chapter 1. And of course, if you're going to study Revelation chapter 1, the best place to begin is verse 1. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must come to pass shortly. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. First of all, let's begin with the word revelation. This book is called the book of Revelation. And when you read chapter one, verse one, it begins with the words, the revelation. The word revelation is a Greek word, apokalupsis, a very important word in the New Testament. The word kalupsis describes the veil or a curtain. If the curtain is closed, you can't see what's on the other side. What's on the other side is there, but the view is obstructed. You're unable to see it. It's there, but because the curtain is closed, because the veil is closed, you simply do not have the ability to see what's on the other side. It's there, but you cannot see it. However, when this word kalupsis is compounded with the word apo, the word apo means away, it means to remove the veil or to remove the curtain. Suddenly, it's like someone pulls on the string of the curtain and the curtain begins to pull apart. At first, it appears just a little and you get a little peek on the other side. But the wider and wider and wider the curtain pulls apart, the veil pulls apart, your view of the other side becomes clearer and clearer and clearer until finally you're able to see it. It was there all the time, but you were never able to see it because 
of the curtain or because of the veil. But when the veil is removed, when the curtain is removed, suddenly your view is unobstructed and you're able to see what is there. It was there all the time. You were never able to see it. But now the veil's been removed. You have a revelation. That's where the word revelation comes from, the Greek word apokalupsis, which means if the Holy Spirit personally gives you a revelation, he's pulled the curtains apart and he's allowed you to see something about your life. He's allowed you to see something about a situation. He's allowed you to clearly see something that was there that you were never able to see on your own. But when the Holy Spirit gets involved, he removes the veil and enables you to see what you need to see. Well, this is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we continue in this series, studying Revelation chapter 1, we're going to see Jesus as he was never revealed in the Gospels. It's not a new Jesus. It's just the elements of Jesus that were never visible to human eyes when he walked on the earth. This view of Jesus was obstructed. And now John is in the Isle of Patmos in a cave called the Cave of the Revelation, and he's having a revelation of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, the power of God, the Spirit of God is pulling apart the veil, and John sees into the realm of the Spirit, and he sees Christ as he has never seen Christ before. It's not a new Christ. This is who Christ always was. He was just never able to see it before until the Holy Spirit removed the hindering force and suddenly John's view became unobstructed and he could see Christ in all of his glory. He could see elements of Christ that he had never seen with his natural eye. Now, when you come to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the very last word in verse 1 is the name John. This was a revelation which was given to John. John. Then when you come to verse 4, Verse 4, again, begins with the name John. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So in two verses, twice, we hear this name, John. Then when you come to verse 9, it says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So in verse 9, we now have the name John repeated for the third time in nine verses. And in fact, when you get to Revelation 1 verse 9, it doesn't just say John, it says I, John. That word I is the word ego. It's very emphatic. He's drawing attention to himself. It's the equivalent of saying it's me. It's really me. In case you've wondered what John is talking to, the John who spoke to you in verse 1 and the John who spoke to you in verse 4, it's me. Now I'm talking to you again in verse 9. Let me make sure you know who's talking to you. It's really me, I, John. Why in the world was John drawing such attention to himself? Because at this moment, he was the last living apostle of the first 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. All the other apostles by this time had already been martyred for their faith. John was the only surviving apostle. Now, let me give you a little history about the life of the apostle John and why his role is so important in the book of Revelation. The Bible tells us that the apostles were scattered in the early days of the church. And we know that by the year 44, the apostles generally had all left the city of Jerusalem. Now, they came back for meetings, but they had generally left. And John left with Mary, the mother of Jesus. We know this. History tells us this. And if you remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, when Jesus was on the cross and he was dying, 
Jesus looked down at his mother, then he looked at John, and he said to John, Behold, your mother. And at that moment, Jesus entrusted the care of his mother into the care or into the hands of the apostle John. And John became the caretaker of Mary from that moment forward for the rest of her life. And history tells us that when John left Jerusalem, Mary went with him. Wherever John went to minister, Mary went with him. Mary and John were always together because John took his responsibility seriously to take care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And John relocated to Asia and ministered throughout the regions of Asia. Well, at that particular moment, the apostle Paul was the apostle who was presiding over the region of Asia. And he had a significant ministry there until the year 67 when he was executed for his faith. If you remember, there was a great fire in Rome in the year 64, which probably was started by Nero and his servants. But Nero needed a scapegoat, so Nero decided he would blame believers for this fire. He didn't like believers for a number of reasons, and therefore he decided to choose them to be the scapegoat for this fire. And when Nero accused believers of being arsonists and said they were the ones who planned the great fire of Rome, a great scourge, a big persecution began against the church, and it began to rage against the church in the larger cities of the Roman Empire, primarily in Rome, but not only in Rome, in every major Roman city throughout the Roman Empire. And Ephesus was one of those cities. Ephesus was a very large, influential church in a very pagan city. The Apostle Paul had started that church. It had been the basis of his ministry. And from there, and from the leadership of the Ephesian church, the whole region of Asia was affected by the gospel. We know that Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And just for a little bit of information, Timothy was the pastor until the age 80. Interesting that when Paul wrote 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he told Timothy, God's not given you a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. When persecution really began against the church after the great fire of Rome, it seems that a spirit of fear had tried to come on Timothy, and Paul was combating that spirit of fear, trying to encourage Timothy by telling him, God's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, Timothy came out of that period of fear and became such a strong church leader, and it seems, according to early church writings, that he led the church until the age 80 when he was martyred during a pagan parade on the Kurida Street right in the center of Ephesus. He was very bold. He was the opposite of fearful. In fact, the early historical writings say Timothy came out of his home. He came out of a residence, came onto the street and rebuked the pagans for their activity very boldly, no fear whatsoever. And that's when they killed him. But he died in faith and he died in courage, just the opposite of fear. But Timothy was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And when Paul was executed in the year 67 in Rome, Paul was executed because he was blamed as being one of the chief arsonists for the fire that burned down the city of Rome. He was killed as a criminal, even though he had committed no crime. And when Paul died, John, who was already ministering in Asia, relocated to Ephesus. And from Ephesus, he then became the presiding elder or the presiding bishop for all the churches in the region of Asia. 
not just Asia, possibly even the whole of Asia Minor, but with a particular emphasis on the churches in Asia. And we even know where John lived. John lived on a hilltop, which was located just above the temple of Artemis. The way we know that is because it was written by Polycrats 30 years after John's death. Polycrats identified the place where John lived. He wrote that John lived in a house on a hill just behind the temple of Artemis. And this is amazing to me. People today, you know, they say, oh, witches are so evil and the occult is so evil. And they have a little bit of a fear of evil things. But my friends, we have a faith that overcomes the world. John's house was just on the hilltop behind the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the most wicked sites on the planet. It was so huge that it was listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There were 6,000 priests and priestess who were continually offering sacrifices to demon gods inside the temple of Artemis. There was no location more horrible than the temple of Artemis. And John lived just a stone's throw from there on the top of a hill. In fact, from where John lived on the top of that hill, he looked down at the temple of Artemis. From his hilltop home, he could see the smoke billowing into the air from the temple of Artemis. And John lived there for a very specific reason. If he had lived in the city of Ephesus, he would have had many problems doing ministry because Domitian was the ruler at that time. And Domitian was very against the Christian faith. Domitian had already declared that he was Lord and he was God and required the entire empire to worship him. It was for this reason that the church of Ephesus and Timothy were having many problems inside the church. But John, as an apostle and as a bishop, had to meet with many church leaders who came to see him from all over Asia. If he had lived in Ephesus, it would have been very troublesome for those leaders because of political persecution. So John located to a very remote spot, a place where you would not think to find an apostle or a bishop just above the temple of Artemis on the hill from his residence. He could look down at this evil, evil site, but no one would have suspected that he lived there. And because it was outside the city limits, the police, the authorities basically left him alone. And from this remote location, he entertained church leaders who came to see him from all over Asia and even from all over the Roman Empire. And John took care of Mary until the time of her death. And after her death, he continued to live on that hilltop where he did ministry for decades as the leader, the episcopus, the bishop, the apostle to Asia Minor, really taking the place of the Apostle Paul after Paul had been executed in the year 67. Now, we know that John was arrested approximately the year 93. And by this time, he was already in his mid-90s. Some say maybe 92, but he was in his 90s for sure. John was already an old man. And there he was. He had been serving on that hilltop, ministering to the pastors and the bishops and the leaders from all over Asia who came to see him. He was providing guidance for all the churches for nearly 30 years without a problem. And then in the year 93, John was arrested. Now we can only assume why he was arrested. Probably he was arrested because he refused to burn incense to a statue of Domitian. This was a requirement. Domitian had declared empire-wide that he was Lord and God. 
and required everyone everywhere to worship him. And part of that worship was burning incense to his image. If you walked into a market, before you could walk into the market, you had to burn a pinch of incense. If you were walking through a region of the city, before you could enter into the next region of the city, you had to burn a pinch of incense. Well, if John had come into the city of Ephesus and had to pass one of those statues and refused to burn a pinch of incense, it would have been noticed. Something of this nature must have happened because suddenly police are knocking on John's door. John is arrested. Though he's committed no crime, he is arrested for some political reason. And John is dispatched to the city of Rome. Imagine it. Here he has served for nearly 30 years on that hilltop outside the city of Ephesus without any kind of problem, without any disturbance, just faithfully doing his ministry. Now, for some political reason, John has been arrested and he's dispatched to Rome where he's going to stand in front of the emperor Domitian himself. Now, why would Domitian require John, an elderly man, to come to Rome? because he was the last living apostle of Jesus Christ. And when Domitian heard the last apostle of Jesus was still alive and had been arrested, Domitian wanted to see him and required that John be carried by ship to the city of Rome. So now John is in his early 90s. He's walking through a corridor in Rome into the throne room where he stands in front of the emperor Domitian who requires John to reject his faith and to worship him. John refuses, and because John stands by his faith and is devoted to Christ, Domitian says, you're going to die. And early Christian writings tell us what happened. Many very serious writers, including Tertullian, tells us that John was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. This was a method of persecution and torture, which was regularly used by Romans. Sounds very unique to us, but it was not unique to the Romans. They did this very often when they wanted to really create a horrific death for somebody. So now they've bound John, they've thrown him into a vat of boiling oil, and normally the oil was so hot that it would have cooked John and caused his meat, his flesh, to fall off the bones. But when they drug the flesh hook through the oil to bring up the skeleton and to bring up the remains, the early Christian writers tell us John came out of that oil completely unburned, unscathed, sustained by the power of God. This story is told so many times by early Christian writers that we take it to be true. And when Domitian saw that John was unscathed, unburned, supernaturally preserved, he was so terrified by what he had seen that he said, take this man, get him out of my sight, exile him to Patmos. So now John in his young, early 90s, has come from Ephesus to Rome, where he's been thrown into a vat of boiling oil. He has survived it miraculously. Now he's being sent back to the city of Ephesus, and from Ephesus, he will be put on a ship and will be dispatched to the Isle of Patmos. Patmos was just 24 miles off the coast of what is today modern Turkey, or 60 miles from Ephesus. So it wasn't so far from Ephesus, but that 60 miles must have seemed like a great distance because this was a very rough sea. Patmos was a horrible place, horrible. It had been occupied by several previous civilizations, and they had stripped it of all of its trees, of all of its timber. So there was nothing left on Patmos but rocks. There was no vegetation whatsoever. There was an ancient temple on the very peak of Patmos, and guess what? It was the Temple of Artemis, 
on the Isle of Patmos. John, when he was released on the Isle of Patmos, was released as a political prisoner. There were two kinds of prisoners. There were regular criminals. Regular criminals were treated worse. But if you were a political offender who was sent to Patmos, when you were released, you were treated with a degree of respect. Rather than be treated as a common criminal, you were released to just roam the island. You could fend for yourself. You were given no clothes, no water, no food. You were there and you had to fend for yourself. And usually political prisoners just wandered the island looking for somewhere to live. Well, we know that when John went to the Isle of Patmos, we don't know this from the book of Revelation, but we know this from historical sources. He went with a secretary whose name was Prochorus. You can first read about Prochorus in Acts chapter 6. He was chosen to be one of the first deacons. And back in those days, it was very common for notable individuals to travel with assistants or to travel with secretaries. And early Christian writers tell us that Prochorus went with John to the Isle of Patmos and the two of them begin to look for a place to live. And guess where they found a place to live? They found a cave and the cave was just below the Temple of Artemis. I think it's kind of funny. John couldn't get away from the Temple of Artemis. In Patmos, he lived above the Temple of Artemis. But when he came to the Isle of Patmos, he found a cave below the Temple of Artemis. And he moved into that cave. And in that cave, that is where John had his revelation of Jesus Christ. He was there. He was suffering for his faith. What's also interesting is that early Christian writers tell us there were so many political prisoners exiled to Patmos, those who roamed the island, that they actually formed communities. There were entire families that were exiled there. And by the time that John arrived on Patmos, there were small prison communities on the island of Patmos, and John wasted no time before he began to evangelize. And it's very well documented by early Christian writers that John established the church on Patmos, several local churches, and had a thriving faith community in the short time that he was there. And John was there until the death of Domitian in the year 96. And when Domitian died, amnesty was given to political prisoners. And at that moment, John received freedom from the Isle of Patmos. And he had been on Patmos for 18 months. And for 18 months, he had to provide his own water, his own clothes, his own food, there with his servant Prochorus, the two of them serving together. And it was while one day he was in the cave on Patmos, which today is called the Cave of the Revelation. I've been there many times. While he was there, Jesus Christ stepped into that cave and John had a revelation of Jesus Christ. Suddenly the curtains were pulled apart. John saw into the realm of the spirit and saw Christ as he had never seen him before. And that is when John received the book of Revelation. Just for you to understand what happened next. After Domitian died, John boarded a ship. The ship carried him to Patmos back to the city of Ephesus where he moved again into his hilltop home just above and behind the temple of Artemis. And John, as an elderly man in his mid-90s, continued his apostolic bishoping ministry to the churches of Asia. And in that home, he wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And that is why in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, he says, we have a faith 
that overcomes the world. He had a testimony. He could personally declare that faith is our victory that overcomes the world, and your faith will overcome anything you're facing too. Now, we're out of time, but when we come back, we're going to begin seeing exactly what John says in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Please don't miss it. It's going to be wonderful. Now, I told you you're going to need to take notes today, and I understand this was a lot of history, but it's foundational to Revelation chapter 1. But thank you for being with me, and I want to remind you that if you need prayer, we're here for you. We believe in prayer. And we are very sincere when we tell you we'll pray for you as soon as we hear from you. Use the information that is on your screen to contact us. And as soon as we receive that information about how to pray, our team will begin praying for you. But remember Ecclesiastes 8.4, it says, where the word of a king is, there's power. Let the word of God release its power in your life today. And I'll see you in the next program. In John's vision of the exalted Christ, Rick shares the riveting account of the exalted Christ appearing in a vision to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos to deliver his ageless messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Walk through several verses of the first chapter of Revelation as well as pages of church history as we explore many untold details of the last living original apostle, the Apostle John. This captivating five-part series includes John's exile on the Isle of Patmos, how John identified himself to believers as their companion in suffering, how supernatural occurrences take place, Christ's eternal positioning, and why he likens the church to candlesticks. What the exalted Christ revealed to the Apostle John about the condition of the seven churches, a message that applies to the church today. This eye-opening series is available in digital or physical format starting at just $10. We're also offering Rick's book, A Light in Darkness. Discover the world of the first century church in this richly detailed historical narrative, enhanced by classic artwork and beautiful photographs shot on location at archaeological sites. Survey the culture, people, and practices surrounding early believers in the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna. This book will make the lands and the message of the Bible come alive to you as never before. This beautifully bound, 800-page, full-color biblical resource can be yours for $80. Don't miss these special offers, this series, John's Vision of the Exalted Christ, and the book, A Light in Darkness. Call the number on your screen or go to renner.org to order. Call or go online now. Friends, this is Rick Renner, and today I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for helping us to victoriously finish phase one of our ministry expansion project, which was purchasing our Tulsa headquarters building and building the building for our new studio in Moscow. That studio is an anchor for the Word of God, and together we did it. We finished phase one. And then you faithfully stayed with us through phase two and you gave again to help us finish the interior of the studio. And I wanna say thank you so much. But now in front of us is phase three. You say, well, what is phase three? Phase three is paying off the Tulsa building. Now, right now, I'm in the interior of the Moscow Good News Church. It is quite an amazing place. When you walk through this building, it's so beautiful and it testifies to the grace of God and the provision of God and the giving of our church and of our partners. We built this facility debt-free and because of that, the Moscow Church has never had the burden of monthly payments. All of our funds have been released to do the work of the gospel. And now we need to do that in Tulsa and I call this 
Phase 3. And I'm asking you today to pray about joining us as part of the giving team for Phase 3, which is paying off the Tulsa facility. And the reason we want to pay it off is because then it will release funds for us to take the teaching of the Bible to the ends of the earth. And dear friend, right now, the Bible is so needed. And I know that that's my heart and that is your heart. And together, we can take the Bible to the ends of the earth. So please pray about joining us for phase three to finish paying off the Tulsa building. And I want to say thank you in advance.